So very wonderful to, to be here with you this morning. I'd like to go ahead and encourage you to open your Bibles up to the book, <clears throat> excuse me, the book of Jeremiah. Now, as many of you have already noticed this morning, uh, I am without my glasses trying to prepare for upcoming trip and get used to wearing my contacts again. So if I seem to have a, a lost or agitated look in my eye, I assure you that is the reason why. Um, as you're opening your Bibles up to the book of Jeremiah, or you're spending a little bit of time studying from this book this morning, specifically in Jeremiah chapter 18, while you're turning there, I just want to say how thankful I am to be able to stand here with the saints today. It is so, one of my, my favorite part of the week is whenever we are gathered together to sing praises to God, to worship Him, as, and as Ronnie did such an excellent job leading our minds in, in remembrance of the death of His Son, uh, it just is so encouraging to me and so edifying to me to be gathered here with you. Um, and, and I'm so thankful for our visitors that have chosen to be here with us. Such a, a wonderful encouragement to have you here. You are our honored guest, and we are so thankful that you have chosen to, to do that this morning. Now today, we're going to be spending some time considering what we read in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. We're going to be spending some time considering Jeremiah's visit to the potter's house. Let's read that together. Jeremiah Chapter 18, verses 1 through 10. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, and go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up. <clears throat> or to plant it. If it, doesn't, if it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised to bless it. Now when God told Jeremiah, as we get a little bit of a, maybe, maybe kind of close our eyes and we kind of picture what Jeremiah is going through here in this visit. When he told Jeremiah to go visit the potter's house, he wasn't sending Jeremiah to the to the place where the potter, uh, his abode, it wasn't where he, where he rested his head at night. It was where, he was where he would work. It was his place of fabrication. He was working here, and the Lord was going to give him a message for the people of Israel. It was specific to them. The potter's house, as many commentators and scholars have surmised, that it was very likely probably south of Jerusalem. On the slopes of the Valley of Hinnom, there was much water and there was much clay found in this area. And the potter's house would have been near a field, a, a large field where the clay could, could be collected, it could be weathered, it could be stored and prepared in this field. There would also have been, when he went here, a kiln, a type of oven for firing the pottery. And there would have been a place to dispose of all the, the old pottery, that may, maybe, maybe some practice things that the potter had done, some things that didn't turn out the way he intended after they were fired. There would have been a dump where he would have gotten rid of the old uh, and, and the, the damaged or the dysfunctional pottery. 
The house would have been a place that provided cover for the pottery's, potter's wheel or the pottery wheel so the potter could fashion vessels during all kinds of weather. And it would have also helped in the drying process because of the firing of the clay in the kiln. And so this is where God sends Jeremiah. He sends him to this place of, of fabrication where this potter is at work preparing pottery and it is here he's going to teach him a principle regarding the control and regarding the power of God. Now something else that would have been familiar at the potter's house that Jeremiah would have saw would have been this potter making a potter uh, a piece of pottery. And he would have been doing so on a potter's wheel. So the way it would have worked was there was a large lower wheel that the potter would have set down. He would have spun with his foot. He would have kicked this large wheel and it would have spun around and it was attached to an axle that would have went up to a much smaller wheel. And the smaller wheel, as it spun, he would have placed a, a lump of clay on this smaller upper wheel. And this is where the ball of clay, this is where the pottery would have been formed. As this centrifugal force of spinning this ball, this lump of clay around, the, the potter would have taken his, his fingers and, and his skill that he has, and he would have begun forming that lump of clay into something that he desired. Now, as often happens, as I would imagine, I have absolutely zero experience in doing this. I've seen it done on TV. I love watching the, the videos that sometimes pop up on Facebook of somebody making these very elaborate um, vases and, and or vases and, and making all these different sorts of things out of clay. I love watching this done. Um, but I imagine oftentimes doesn't go exactly how you expect it to turn out. Things don't, uh, the, the clay doesn't do exactly what you're expecting it to do. And oftentimes in fashioning the clay, maybe a defect is found. You know, as, as clay is gathered, sometimes it can have too much dirt in it. And that dirt, those impurities make it where it's not able to be worked with the way the potter intends for it to work with. Maybe he finds uh, large chunks of, of, of rock or, or gravel that is in there, and that's going to cause a real problem with this. And so that's got to be, um, it's got to be purified. The treading process, that was the process in which they would gather this clay up and they would take it out in the field and they would literally just stomp and walk all over it until that clay reached the right sort of consistency to be able to be used and, and, and to be uh, molded in the, in the proper sense. Maybe that treading process was not done properly. But for some reason, the clay uh, in, in this visit that Jeremiah takes, for some reason there was, a, there was something that caused the clay not to produce the desired result. And when that happens, the potter simply reshapes the clay into a ball and begins producing another vessel. It was this process that Jeremiah came and observed so carefully. This is what Jeremiah came and saw, the process of, a, uh, of a, some form of pottery being made. The, there was a, a defect. There was something wrong in which the pottery wasn't producing the, right, uh, the desired product. And so it was reshaped and began to be created into something else. And the point here in, in, in seeing this and seeing all that was going on was to, to demonstrate the power that the potter had over the clay. The clay was in his hands, and the clay was completely under his control. The defects were in the clay. They were not in the hand of the potter. As the potter was creating this, the clay was not, was not doing what he intended for it to do. Jeremiah was then taught the meaning of the figure. And that is that there is an omnipotent, the, the omnipotent power of God. We use these words sometimes describing God. Omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. They all come from the same root word meaning all. Omni meaning all. Uh, omniscient, omniscience, all knowledge, the all-knowing God, omnipresent, all present, all everywhere. God is, is, is able to be anywhere and everywhere at one time. 
and omnipotent, all-powerful. The power that the Lord has over nations is compared to the power that the potter had over the clay. Just as the potter remade the clay to conform to his, to his purpose, it's within the Lord's power to mold Israel. This is the message he was sending to Israel. It's within my power to mold you, Israel, into what is in conformance to my plan. Now, the, though this parable is meant principally for Israel, that, that, is, <coughs> excuse me, that is what the, the parable was meant for. It was to send this message to Israel. God still deals with nations and he still deals with individuals in a similar fashion today. So as, we study, as we've read through this, we need to consider some things that we learn in, in this parable. One of the first things that we might do well to understand here is that God is the potter. God is oftentimes compared to a potter who fashions us in accordance to his will. God formed Adam. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read about that. That God formed Adam from the dust of the ground. Quite literally working as a potter, he created a living being from the dirt of the earth. Job. Turn over to the book of Job for just a moment. Job realized this whenever he spoke to his friends. In Job... Job chapter 10, verses 8 through 9. Excuse me. Job 10, verses 8 through 9. Job's record is saying, Did you not pour me out like... Excuse me, verse 8. Your hands fashioned and made me all together, and would you destroy me? Job is talking to the Lord here. He says, Your hands fashioned and made me all together, and would you destroy me? Remember now that you have made me as clay, and would you turn me into dust again? Job understood. He... He saw that he was a product of God's making. In fact, his friend uh, Eliehu, whenever he would speak in just a moment in Job 33 verse 6, he goes on to say very similar things showing that he recognized this as well. Job 33 verse 6 saying, Behold, I belong to God like you, and I too have been formed out of the clay. That uh, Job understood, his friends understood that it was God who had created them. God had formed them. He was the potter of their lives. This is also seen uh, or shows the power that God has over the clay as the potter. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 29. Isaiah 29. If you have your Bible still marked in Jeremiah, Isaiah is going to be just previous to that, to that book. Isaiah 29 verse 16. It says, You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, He did not make me. Or what is formed say to him who formed it, He has no understanding. Isaiah 29 verse 16 shows us that there is a difference between the clay and the potter, and the potter holds a superior position. You know, it's, a, it's certainly a ludicrous thought to think that that's, somebody would make something and, and it would have more power than the person that made it. It's a ludicrous thought to look at this building, which we know Charles played such a large part in, in, the, in the producing this building and creating this building. It is a ludicrous thought to think that building would somehow say, Charles, you didn't have anything to do with this. I am somehow greater than you. You, you can't make a building. You don't know what you're talking about. But it's also ludicrous that when the minds of men start to conclude that they have the right to form themselves into whatever it is that they desire to be formed into, that's what Isaiah 45 is going to go on to teach us, that we must, not, we must not question our maker. Isaiah 45 and verse 9 
says, Woe to the one who quarrels with his maker. An earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. Will the clay say to the potter, What are you doing? Or the thing you are making say, He has no hands. We have no right to question our maker and to quarrel and to fight back and to push back against him. This is how Jeremiah spoke to the sons of Zion over in Lamentations chapter 4. Again, if you're still marked in Jeremiah, Lamentations is going to be the book immediately following Jeremiah. In Lamentations chapter 4, in verse 2, it says, The precious sons of Zion waited against fine gold how they are regarded as earthen jars. That's, all, that's, that's the relationship that they have with God the potter, that they are that which is created. We have no right to, to assume power over the Creator. We have no right to, to question the, uh, the, the Creator. And Paul uses this illustration in Romans chapter 9 and verse 20 through 23 to show the, the will of God. Romans chapter 9, verses 20 through 23. <clears throat> Here says, On the contrary, who are you, O man? who answers back to God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured, much patience, uh, endured with much patient vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Paul shows this to illustrate that God, the, the will of God, the power that God has, the place that God has in, in connection with his creation. And then also Jeremiah chapter 19, the very next chapter from what we have read, the message continues on to show God uh, will destroy the wicked like a piece of pottery. Jeremiah 19 verses 10 through 11 says, Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you and say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, just so will I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. And they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place for burial. We need to see God. We need to see God as the potter. But when we see God as the potter, we also then need to recognize ourselves as the clay. Now the parallel between humanity and the clay it can't be carried too far because humanity, mankind, we are not passive like the clay is. In the parable, the clay has no ability to refuse. The clay is just there. It is there. It cannot refuse what the, what the potter's his intentions are for it. But as mankind, we can. We have the ability to refuse. So, so we are not passive in that sense. However, when we repent, <clears throat> when we repent of our sins... God can rework us into vessels of honor. Turn over to First Timothy, or excuse me, Second Timothy, for just a moment. Second Timothy, chapter two, verses twenty through twenty-one. God can rework us into vessels of honor, sanctified and useful for the master. That's what we read here. It says in, in verse twenty. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. And therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful for the, to the master, prepared for every good work. Now, this passage, speaking of, of being recreated into something that is, that is useful 
being, being created into something that is, that is made for honor for God. The connection between this passage and the one that immediately precedes it, the one is right before it, is a very, very practical connection. Turn back just a few verses uh, to verse 17 through 19. Here it's speaking of avoiding worldly and empty chatter. Paul says their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are His, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. What we see here in this passage, the connection between these passages, is that Paul is giving a very high definition of the church. And when he gives this definition of the church, it consists of those who belong to God, and it consists of those who are on their way to righteousness. They are abstaining from wickedness. We talked about this last Sunday morning. If you didn't have the opportunity to hear that lesson, go back and listen to that. It's, it's on our website because it's, it, it ties in very well to this point. Whenever we see this high definition, the church is made up of people who are known by God. It is made up of people who are, who are walking towards righteousness, who are abstaining from wickedness. The obvious question that should creep into our mind is this. How can you explain then the existence of evil in the church? How can you explain to me men like, like we read about here, Hymenaeus and Philetus, how can you explain that if this high definition of the church is to be accurate? Paul's reply to that question would no doubt be verses 20 through 21. In a great house, there are all kinds of utensils. There are things of precious metal, and there are things of base metal. There are things that have dishonorable use, and there are things that have honorable use. And so it is in the church. Why? Because the church is made up of just that, people. You'll remember last Sunday, we discussed the difference between the church universal and the church local. We discussed that this isn't a problem in the church universal. Because those who are sinning, those who refuse to repent, and those who will just continue willingly sin, they're simply cut off by the Lord. They are cut off, cast out. Uh, John chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 5, talks about the vine and the branches. If we're not a part of that vine, we are just simply cut off and cast out. So long as the local church, however, consists of men and women, it is going to remain a cross-section of humanity. And just like all kinds of people make up the world, all kinds of people make up the local church as well. This is the truth that Jesus is stating. <coughs> Over in Matthew, when Jesus teaches the parable, <clears throat> when Jesus teaches the parable of the wheat and the tares in Matthew chapter 13, in Matthew 13, verses 24, verses 24 through 30, it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But the, ta uh, but the tares you may... Excuse me. But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both good to grow... 
allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barns. He went on to speak more about this and to explain this in verses 36 through 43, because when he, le- when he left the crowds and went into the house, his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, the one, <coughs> the one who sows the good seed is the seed of man, and the field is the world. And so for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather up, gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. Jesus was telling his apostles, there are going to be, there's going to be wheat. There are going to be those that are righteous, that are living for the Lord in the world. And there are going to be tares. There are going to be ones that, that are planted right along with them. And guess what? When we get down to verse 41, he's saying that the angels are going to gather them out of his kingdom. The stumbling blocks, those who commit lawlessness, that means those, they are going to be in the church. They are going to infiltrate their way in because as we talked about last week, Membership into the local church is done not by divine membership, but by earthly membership, by men looking at other, at, at other men and judging whether or not they are, they are going to be a member. They're going to be joined together with this local body. And so, yes, you're going to find within the local church vessels of dishonor and vessels of honor. <clears throat> he goes on in, in verses 47 and 48 of the same chapter, again teaching this principle of the dragnet. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they set it down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. The dragnet again, gathering of every kind of fish. Both of these parables again teaching the church is going to be made up of both people that are doing right and people that are doing wrong. God's judgment will though in the very in the end will make the separation. They will not even though they might hide that's that uh, the, the wrong things they do from everybody else. God sees what is going on. He will make that separation in the end. We can't hide that from the potter. And so those who criticize the church because there are imperfect people in it. Maybe we've heard that before. I'm not going there because there's, there's hypocrites there. I'm not going there because there's liars there. I'm not going to be a part of that because there's just all sorts of people who are doing things that aren't right. When we criticize the church because there are imperfect people in it, we are criticizing it because it's composed of people just like us. Men and women who make mistakes. Men and women who, who sin. Men and women who who transgress God's law at times and need his forgiveness and rely upon his grace. So it is not given to us to judge the heart because of this fact. Final judgment belongs to God. Nevertheless, it is given to us. It is the duty of Christians to keep ourselves free from polluting influences. We can't have the mindset to say, well, just just because God has said there's going to be evil in the world and just because there are evil things being done, Well, I'm just going to wait for God to straighten those things out at the end. (coughs) That's God's job. I'm just going to sit back and wait. Why, why, when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, didn't he give that that information to them? In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. 
It says it is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant, and you have not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. Now, why doesn't Paul, when he writes to them, say there's immorality here? But you know what? It's okay. God's going to take care of that in the end. There's immorality here, but that's what Jesus told us to expect. So just, just hang in there. Paul writes to him and says, there is something that you should be doing, and you're not doing it because you have become arrogant. <clears throat> he criticizes, he condemns the church in this passage. There's no claim to just wait and let God sort things out. Just the opposite is given. In fact, rather, a, a little later on in the same passage, in verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? They were to keep the church pure. They were to remove the leaven before it spread, before it infected the entire, the entire congregation. I, I just, just recently, my, my grandmother gave me some tapes that, that belonged, uh, some to my grandfather and, and his father and some to my uncle. But I heard a, a, a story related through these tapes of my grandfather when he was at FC College. And, and, and this, story, this story really helped me emphasize or, or picture this passage a little bit better. He had a stomach ache while he was at FC. And he was getting ready to go in for a test. And one of his friends said, if you want to remove that stomach ache, you just take a little bit of yeast. Take a little bit of yeast for your stomach. That'll help, that'll help that out. And so he went down to the store and he bought a package of the, the, the Flaxman's yeast. And, and he went back to his dorm and he got his stuff and he got ready to walk out. And he grabbed a cup of water and he opened it up and he dumped that yeast in his mouth, poured the water in. And before he could spit it out, he was almost choking to death. He was clawing to get this stuff out of his mouth. He didn't understand you supposed to mix that up a little bit, dilute that a little bit before you drink it. But it was that fast acting, that once that yeast hit that moist environment, it spread, and it spread quickly. When we think of the yeast that's talking about here, the little leaven, leavens the whole lump. We need to treat it as something that is, that it, that is able to quickly infect, quickly spread. And so there needs to be a, a push to keep the church pure. But we also must remember that it is, it is not our job to be heart inspectors. It is not our job to be heart detectives. God will separate the good from the bad in the, in the day of judgment. But it is our job to strive to keep the church pure. And that starts by first looking within ourselves and making sure that we are being pure. Now, one of the things that we see is God the potter and ourselves as the clay and that power that he has over that. One of the things that's extremely encouraging that we see from the parable is the realization that marred pottery... Maybe we, we haven't been pure. We have not. We have impurities. We have inconsistencies. We have not prepared ourselves. Marred pottery can be remade. <clears throat> While it's true that God, God does have a plan for our lives, He does have a will for us, something that He desires for us to do, we also have our own free wills we talked about earlier. We can choose to disobey Him. We are not passive. And anytime we deviate from God's plan, we bring misery onto our, into our lives. Turn back to Proverbs for just a moment. <coughs> Proverbs chapter, uh, chapter 6. In Proverbs chapter 6, we read a little bit about some of the plans that God has in our lives. In Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 through 35, Proverbs 6, verse 20 to 35, we read of the God's plan for the home and what he expects out of the home. 
My son, observe the commandments of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. Bind them continually on your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk about, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you wake, they will teach to you. For the commandment is a lamp and the teaching is light and reproofs for discipline are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the smooth tongue of the adulteress. Now in this first part of this passage, we see one that the, the, the children, my, my son, the children are to observe the commandments of their father and the teachings of their mother. They are to listen to that and they are to take very close attention to it, pay very close attention to it, tying it around their neck, uh, keeping it with them when they walk, when they sleep, when they wake. We are to constantly be mindful of the things that our parents have taught me. But parents, we are to be teaching. We see that God has a, a plan for the family, for the home. The father is to be giving commandments. The mother is to be giving teaching to the children. These, these things are, are important in God's plan. And as we continue going on, we see when, that when we, we see the consequences of, of turning away from that plan. Verse 25 says, Do not desire her, bo- her beauty. They're talking about the evil woman, the adulteress. Do not desire her beauty in your heart nor let her capture you with her eyelids. For on account of a harlot, one is reduced to a loaf of bread, and adulteress hunts for the precious life. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Or can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he is hungry. But when he is found, he must repay sevenfold. He must give all the substance of his house. The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. His reproach will not be blotted out. For jealousy enrages a man. He will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not accept any ransom. He will not be satisfied, though you give many gifts. So we see that misery comes from from deviating from the plan that God has. If, If fathers and mothers are not teaching their children, if children are not listening to the teachings of their parents, it brings misery in their lives. Also over in Proverbs chapter 19, verses 18. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, we see another snapshot of this. Proverbs 19, verse 18, again talking about raising children. It says, discipline your son while there is hope and do not desire his death. When we discipline our children, we, we, we do so because we have the hope, the desire that they will grow to learn not only that which is right from wrong, that which is good from evil, that which is the best thing for them to do. And if we choose not to do that, we might as well, as we've just read over in Proverbs 6, we might as well be desiring their death. We're desiring maybe not a physical death, but a spiritual death that that very well could come from from not showing them the discipline that they so desperately need and oftentimes desire. In Proverbs chapter 10, verse 1, we also read the Proverbs of Solomon, a wise son makes a father glad. But a foolish son is, to gr- is a grief to his mother. Well, if we train our children up the way that God intends for us to train, they, that, that, brings, that brings happiness into our lives. That brings blessings to our lives. But if we choose not to, very often we bring, to, we bring misery and we bring grief to ourselves. Have you ever had a desire? Have you ever wished that you could just go back then and start over? We could just do things again. If I could just go back, I would, I would do this so differently. Maybe we find ourselves in an unpleasant situation. Maybe we have consequences that, are, that have been placed upon us and they're because of our own choices, our own making. <clears throat> and if only I could take it back. 
if only I could take back those hurtful words. If only I could take back the things and, and make different choices. And sadly, in, in so many cases, it's not, it's not possible. It is impossible to go back and, and impossible to start over. The, uh, the, the saying, you can't unring the bell. You can't, you can't pull back the arrow. Uh, it, it rings so true in our lives. A lot of times when we, mess, when we do things that we wish we could go back and we could do over, it's kind of like getting a really bad haircut. We, just, we kind of just have to live with it. We have to wait for it to, to grow out, and, and once it grows out, we can maybe try again. There's a story of a, of a barber shop that opened up right across the street from another, from a, another barber shop. They were competitors. And this new barber shop, they opened up, and they, they heralded themselves as a discount barber shop. And they put a sign up in the window, we, we offer $7 haircuts. It's not to be outdone. The, the existing, the established barbershop put a sign up in their window. It said, we fix $7 haircuts. How nice would it be? How nice would it be if the, when, when we made mistakes, there could be someplace we'd go that we just, we, we can fix that. Now, oftentimes they're, they're, that is not possible. But the good news from this parable that we read in Jeremiah, from the, from the account of Jeremiah and the potter, the good news is that no matter how bad we have messed things up, we, can, we might not be able to fix the, the, the things that we have done, but we can be remade. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 illustrates to us in Paul's own words that he understood this so very well. 1 Timothy chapter 1, and verse 15, starting off his letter to the young preacher Timothy, Paul says, <clears throat> It is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Paul knew what it meant to be marred clay. He had persecuted Christians. He had imprisoned Christians. He hated Christians. We talked about that in class this morning. Hate To, to, to hate someone is to, is to commit murder in the heart. He hated them, but not enough for that. He stood by and he literally condoned the murder of men. Paul knew what it meant. He knew what it meant to be marred clay. But he also knew what it meant to be set free from the bondage of sin. Turn over to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 verses 17 through 18. It says, "But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart of that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. He knew what that meant to be within the bondage of sin. And Paul knew what it meant to be freed from that bondage, to have that weight lifted off, those shackles removed, and be a part of this, this slavery to righteousness, which Jesus talks about in, in, in the book of Matthew. And he says that it is a yoke, but it's a yoke which is light. It's a burden which is easy. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, he wrote to the Corinthians <clears throat> saying, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Just like that vessel that didn't turn out right. The potter constructed it into a new creation. The old vessel was done away with. The old vessel was, was completely reformed into, into a ball, and a new vessel was created. 
in Christ, our old self, with all of its sin, with its impurity, it is destroyed. It is put to death. We are as if that marred clay rolled back into a ball and created into a new creature, a vessel purposed for honorable use. And no matter how bad the marring is, no matter how bad the impurities are, Christ has the ability to do this. In 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Paul, again talking to the Corinthians, said, Do you not know that, there are unri- that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. The way that God can take something so far from what He desires it to be and recreate it. Such unrighteousness that has no place in the kingdom of God. And yet they were washed through baptism. They were sanctified. That is that they were set apart from that old life that they had set apart to a new life in Christ and purposed, purposed towards that honor. And then they were justified. When I read When I read these passages, when I read of the power that God has in my life, I am so encouraged. I am so strengthened by these these things because it doesn't matter what I was. It doesn't matter the things that I had done. It doesn't matter where I came from. God took a very pitiful form and He reformed it into something that was forgiven He reformed it into something that was sanctified, a vessel made for His honor. And if He can do that for me, if He can do that for Paul and the way Paul viewed himself, the things that he had done, if He can do that for the people that are described here in 1 Corinthians 6, He can do that for you. Clay has very, very little value by itself. It's literally dirt. Find it, we dig into the ground, we can find clay all day long, and you can't hardly even give it away. But it can be something very beautiful. It can be something even priceless when shaped and molded by the hands of a master. Go ahead and open your songbooks for a moment to the song we were about to sing. As we think of this song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. We think of the words that are in it. Mold me and make me after thy will. Search me and try me. Wash me. Fill me with thy spirit to all shall see Christ only always living in me. This morning, if you have not been washed, if you have not been sanctified, if you have not been justified like those spoke of in 1 Corinthians 6, if you are not a saved child of God, then this song that we sing is a, is a plea to God to make you like he sees fit, to make me in the way that you see best, God, because I am am but marred clay and you are the potter. But here's the thing, he won't do that until we submit to him. At the first verse ends, when I am yielded and still, when I am offering myself up and submits to God, it means that I believe that he is 
that means that I'm ready to, to repent. I'm ready to turn away from, from the imperfections, the impurities that are in my life. I'm ready to turn away from the world, and I'm ready to start looking to you, God, as the potter, as the ultimate source of power and authority in my life. I'm ready to give my life up to you. I'm ready to be baptized, to be washed, to have my sins removed and taken away. I'm ready to confess before men and before the whole world that I am yours and that you are mine and that I believe that you exist. Maybe you have done that already. Maybe you are already a Christian today. But as this song, we, as we sing this song, don't forget that it still is a plea. It is a plea from you to God to continually search our hearts as David spoke of in the Psalms, search our hearts and continually make me into the image of Christ. This morning, if we can assist you in any way in coming to the Lord, I pray that you won't delay. I pray that you will not wait. There is water here. We can, you can be baptized. You can begin your walk with the Lord this morning. Or if because of sin you have allowed yourselves to, to become more of an, a vessel built for dishonor. You're not sanctifying yourself as a vessel for honor. This morning, repent of that. Turn away from those things and turn back to your Lord. In whatever way we can assist you, I encourage you, won't you please let it be known this morning as we stand and as we sing.